If you've not been redeemed, as we have just communicated to one another in song, just as our brother David pleaded with you in the sermon this morning, we plead with you this evening to do what is right, to be redeemed, to have your sins washed away. That's what we are here for tonight, in part, is to invite those who need to make correction in their life, to begin service to the Lord, or to be restored back into faithful service to Him. I invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, to a rather familiar passage uh, that is probably one of the most familiar passages in the book of Zechariah. We're just going to make a very brief reference to that here in just a couple of moments. As was said, uh, we are so grateful for our visitors. We're so grateful for those who are here that haven't been able to be with us for the last couple of weeks. And it's a time of year where there's a lot of sickness, it seems, and we miss those who are not here, and we look forward to seeing them back as well. When you think about the things that we talk about as Christians, we talk about salvation, we talk about the gospel, and we talk about Jesus and his sacrifice. And one of those sacrifices that was made uh, was Jesus himself in the powerful nature of what he did on the cross some 2,000 years ago. And we talk about that, and sometimes we just it just rolls off of our lips or off of our tongues without actually thinking about why it is so powerful. And that's the adjective that we're focusing on tonight is the idea, not just the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but why is there power in it? And we know that Paul would say that he would preach Christ and him crucified. We know that the power of the gospel is that which is to save. We know, and I appreciate Brother Sam picking out very good songs uh, that we do uh, know, maybe one or two that uh, we didn't know as well. But that's good to learn those songs that remind us of the powerful sacrifice of Jesus the Christ. I want to share with you four reasons why the sacrifice of Jesus is so powerful, why it matters so much. And you may say, well, wait a minute, I already believe in the importance of the sacrifice of Jesus, and I already know its power. But these are things that we need to be reminded of, and these are things that those who may not be Christians who are present with us or who are listening need to be familiar with as well. And then thirdly, we need to have the capability to share this message with others. I want to start with the idea that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago was powerful because it was prophetic. It was prophetic in its very nature in that it wasn't something that was accidental as we will mention in just a couple of moments in our second observation. You see, there are those who would suggest that Jesus went to the cross and that wasn't God's promise, God's plan, or God's prophecy. But if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we won't take the time to read those verses, we recently studied the book of Genesis in greater detail as a congregation. And one of the things that was told there in the Garden of Eden is that as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, they were banished from the garden, 
and that ultimately the only way to have security back with God would be through this redemptive plan. And the book of Hebrews talks about that in great detail among other places, wherein the blood of Jesus will be shed so that individuals can be saved. Now, that's not all found in Genesis chapter 3. And if you go in Genesis chapter 3 and say, well, I don't read any of that. You have to read Genesis 3 and then read the next 65 books. And then you'll get the whole picture. And that's the way the Bible study works is the more we read, the more we connect the dots, the more we get to learn the, the beautiful picture of what God has planned for each of us. There are some 300 or so prophecies made about Jesus the Christ. We could talk about all 300 of those tonight. Uh, we will choose just to talk about a couple of them. For example, if you want to go back sometime and read the 22nd Psalm, which our brother Bruce took us through just recently. In his good study of the book of Psalms, we see so many prophecies in the book of Psalms, including a litany of those things related to Jesus on the cross. Appreciate our good brother Kerry reading for us from Isaiah chapter 53. There's another passage that is classic. Incidentally, if you want passages to help kind of center your mind while partaking of the Lord's Supper, or at least to read maybe while partaking of the Lord's Supper, these are some good passages to kind of just stick in your brain and to open up to maybe from time to time to refresh your mind on the prophecy that Jesus was to come and to endure the death that he endured for us. And then in verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 12, where I asked you to open, there's a statement that is made where in verse 10 it says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon him whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. More on the firstborn and the death and the personal nature at the conclusion of our study together tonight. Simply put, there are prophecies made about Jesus. And you'll notice that there in verse 10, the word him or he is used at least three times. And in, Saul, or in Isaiah 53, just in verses 4 through 7, between 9 to 10 times the word he or him is used, depending on the version that you're reading from, which suggests, and that which we already know, that every prophecy about Jesus the Christ, including but not limited to the nature of his death and the things related to it, are fulfilled in New Testament passages. And so we, when we're thinking about studying evidences, as we're really going to delve into two weeks from now, Lord willing, are individuals who can appreciate the authenticity of the Bible, in part because everything that was predicted, spoken of, hinted at, or in some way talked about in the future, 300, 500, 1,000 years or more before, all came to pass in the New Testament. So the powerful sacrifice of Christ is powerful because it is prophetic. But let me suggest to you, secondly, that it was purposeful. It wasn't an accident. And the reason I point that out, and I've said this before a time or two, that you will run into individuals who are Christian believers, at least they claim to be Christians. Uh, they are Bible believers, but yet they believe that the sacrifice of Jesus was accidental, that that was never part of God's eternal plan. 
uh, our brother David made reference to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 in his sermon this morning, where it says that God has uh, ordained these things even before the foundation of the world. But the Bible speaks of Jesus as having an eternal purpose associated with him. I want to just look very, very briefly and spend maybe 60 to 90 seconds looking at three passages. The book of John is powerful. And I made mention of this a few weeks ago in a sermon that we probably need to, individuals or as families, study the gospel of John once every other month at the very least because of the power found within the gospel of John. But if you read John chapter 1, it starts out unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it starts out that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning with God. And then he goes on to detail that John the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, would be the forerunner who would come and lay the groundwork for Jesus the Christ. And then when that Word came and to this world, verse 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. At no point in the Gospel of John, at no point in any uh, chapter of the Gospel of John, nor in any other New Testament book, is it suggested or hinted at that Jesus died accidentally, that it was a whoops moment where God says, well, this isn't what I planned. That wasn't what happened, but it was part of his eternal plan. I know that because of passages like John chapter 1. I know that because of passages like Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is a, is a, is a great book to study as well. Uh, you could divide it into two uh, portions. Uh, some say the first half of it is, is more uh, of a philosophical argument uh, foundational, and then the second half, chapters 3 and 4, is more pragmatic or practical. You can study it however you like to study. But go back to Colossians 1, and I want to very just quickly read a couple of verses. He, speaking of the Christ, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Incidentally, I have a friend who uh, takes the word image, and he says, imagine man as God envisions. And I thought that was pretty catchy. I wish I would have thought of that. That the image of God is the idea of imagined man as God envisions. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in Jesus all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning who is in the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. At what point in Paul's very Christ-centered epistle to the church at Colossae, to the brethren there, does he suggest, yeah, Jesus died, but it really wasn't what was planned. Nonsense. It was planned because it was part of God's purposeful planning in the past. And also, as Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 1, just as a third uh, text that you could kind of look at there. It says, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was, if you want to underline the word, foreordained or predetermined, depending on the version you're reading from, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The fact of the matter is, is as we recently talked about in Romans chapter 5, and we won't take the time to read those five or six verses, God the Father knew exactly what he was doing. At no point can we look at God and say, you didn't understand what was happening. 
And even in Romans chapter 9, as we were discussing this morning, particularly the first 18 or so verses, God has this omniscient nature to know all things, and he knew what was best in planning for you and for me. And if you go to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, if we were to outline aspects of that, we would certainly point out, as Carrie did a couple of weeks ago, that Christ died for weak, ungodly people. That's you, and that's me. And then Paul would write by way of the Holy Spirit that God chose to demonstrate his love this way. You know, we are sometimes slow learners as human beings, and we need a demonstration or we need an illustration. And so God says, you need an illustration of how much I love you? Here's how. I'm going to give my son to die on a cross that you will know without any doubt, with any shadow of doubt, I love you. That's how much I'm willing to sacrifice for you. And then the third thing that we can read about here in Romans chapter 5 is that the reconciliation that you and I enjoy in the sacrifice of Jesus leads to life. And we need to acknowledge, just as we did at the outset of this second observation, that none of this was by accident, but it was all purposeful and planned. Well, which brings me to a third observation in our list of four, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was permanent. The sacrifice of Jesus was truly a one-time event. Now, I could give you all a, a little piece of paper and have you all write down which book of the Bible, as students of the Bible, which book of the Bible, and I'll even give you a hint, in the New Testament, is probably most helpful in really understanding the permanency of Jesus as a priest and as the Messiah and as the Christ. And if I collected 150 little pieces of paper, they would all start with an H because you're good Bible students. And so let's turn over to the book of Hebrews for just a minute. Not that there are other places that we can't go to to talk about that, but the book of Hebrews is a powerful book. I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday who's not a Christian, uh, but in his particular denomination, he said, we're studying the book of Hebrews right now. And I said, that's a great book to study. And we talked a little bit about chapter four where he was uh, dealing with some of his material. But the sacrifice of Jesus was a one-time event. Go back to Hebrews chapter seven and read verse 23. There were many priests, and the key word there in verse 23 among key words is that there were, past tense, many priests, verse 23, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you want to underline the words were and then the word always and draw an arrow between them, you'll see the difference between a temporal priest that lives for a period of 50 to 100 years and then dies versus a priest who lives and reigns forever because Jesus is a permanent sacrifice and is a priest who never dies. Similarly, as you read on down in verses 26 through 27, Jesus doesn't need to consider his own sin first. And he's the only priest that fits that mold, that fits that category. In verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests, 
past tense, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And we need to acknowledge, as we would in Hebrews chapter 9 and in Hebrews chapter 10, that Jesus' blood is superior to that of the animals that were associated with Old Testament sacrifice and Old Testament acknowledgments of sin. For example, in chapter 9 and verse 11, the text reads that Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Now notice verses 12, 13, 14. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, or goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if, to, to drive the point further, the writer goes on, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And it really is a rhetorical question saying, if, if you believe in the power of the Old Testament sacrifices, you really need to believe in the power of the final, ultimate, and permanent sacrifice of Jesus the Christ. You know, sometimes we study the book of Hebrews, and we do so through the lens of thinking about individuals who have said, we want to be Christians, and then five years or 10 years down the road, the pressure gets very strong as to why you want to quit practicing Christianity. And the writer of Hebrews is really, it seems to me, writing a legal defense, but also uh, being this great cheerleader on the sidelines saying, don't give up. It is worth it to stick with it. And then in chapter 10, in perhaps one of the most quoted verses, it is not possible, or some versions would say it is impossible, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. That's the God that we serve, who provides for us a permanency of a sacrifice that you and I can depend on today, tomorrow, and forever. And if you go on in Hebrews, if we go on and on and on, but let's just spend just an additional two to three minutes doing so, Jesus' sacrifice is a forever event. I know that because of verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, the key word, it seems to me, is the word but. Transition. But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. What do you do when you sit down? It's this proverbial sigh of, I've done my job, mission accomplished, we are done with this. But the priest of the Old Testament could never sit down. Maybe not literally, but proverbially or, or figuratively. He was always about the business of sacrificing for the sins because the sins just kept on rolling. But Jesus says, I'll take care of this first, foremost, and forever. And Jesus then, in verses 19 through 22, provides us direct access to God. In verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness entered the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, he would say in the next statement. That's why... In case you ever wondered, when we pray to our Father 
99.9% of the time, we say we do so through Jesus. We do so through Christ, that it's in his authority that we pray. I'm not suggesting that it is absolutely necessary that uh, that always be included in prayer. I think it's a good practice, if nothing else, just as a verbal pause for us privately or even publicly as men who lead prayer, that we are doing so through Jesus, and without Jesus, we don't have any hope. But that's why we pray through Jesus, because he provides us this unfettered access to our God and enables us that access. And then the final point that I would make on this third observation is that the sacrifice leads to a permanent kingdom, much like we've talked about over the course of the last couple of moments. In chapter 12, in verse 28, one final passage from the book of Hebrews, and then we'll move to our fourth and final point. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Incidentally, the last verse, which probably should be included, verse 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Yes, God is a consuming fire, and yes, he provides us a permanent kingdom altogether. So Jesus' sacrifice was prophetic, it was purposeful, it was permanent, and fourthly, it was personal. And when something is personal, it makes all the difference in the world. When someone makes a sacrifice for you and it is personal, where they are the ones who wrote the check, gave up their time, gave up their home, gave up their food, gave up their vehicle, whatever the case may be, that is meaningful because of its personal nature. So sometimes I say things that are, I'm sure, very profound. I have a lot of profound thoughts and a lot of profound statements. Jesus was God's son. That's profound. Now, I say that jokingly, but at the same time, that's profound. Jesus was God's son, not someone else's child. You know, you might be in a restaurant, and chances are you may see another child that you say, now, if I had to sacrifice one, there'd be one there. (laughs) Maybe not. I probably shouldn't say that. But on my own. The fact is that sometimes it's easier to give what is someone else's than it is our own. In fact, oftentimes that's the case. But Jesus is the Son of God. And so when God the Father made the sacrifice, it was very personal to him. And this is something that everybody can appreciate, whether you are a parent or an eventual parent, or whether you have a loved one, whether you have a... Uh, something that is important or personal for you, everybody can relate to this point. We need to remember the world's most favorite and quoted verse, that God did so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And then the next statement that is made by Jesus is that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That doesn't mean that condemnation will not happen. We have, again, uh, 65 other books and a lot of other material to talk about this. But the fact of the matter is, is Jesus says, the reason I came was to seek and to save. Those were the purposes of Jesus. He came to seek and he came to save. Now, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of our living God, the Hebrew writer will tell us in Hebrews chapter 10, to quote from there. 
But while God loved the world, he also loved his son. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, you remember the occasion there was the baptism of Jesus. And he came out of the water and the words came down from heaven. This is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him and with his choice. And in Matthew chapter 17, in the Mount of Transfiguration, we see a similar rendition of this kind of statement. This is my son whom I love, and then this is the son that I am willing to sacrifice. The fact is, is God's love is the entire reason that all these things happen. Now, on the flip side of that piece of paper where you all wrote down Hebrews, if I were to say, okay, gang, let's come up with a book of the New Testament. Let's come up with an epistle of the New Testament that talks about the love of God more than any other. My mind immediately goes to Bruce, not that he's the author. Bruce may be old enough to be the author of some of the books of the Bible. That was, that was rude, wasn't it? He's okay with it, though. No, Bruce is great. Bruce's class on 1 John two years ago was a great class in which he took us through that epistle and lovingly took us through the epistle of love. And in 1 John chapter 4 or 1 John chapter 5, we see so much written about the love of Jesus. Let's look at those passages here very quickly before we close out. I love 1 John, and I appreciate Bruce's efforts to take us through that passage uh, two and a half years ago. But in chapter 4 in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Beautiful words. You, I, I have trouble reading 1 John 4 and 5 without almost tearing up because of the beauty associated with these words. He says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Notice the order of those two things. We did not love God, and then God said, well, I'll love you back. No, God loved us even while we were sinners, the text tells us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Drop down just a page or so into chapter 5. He who believes, verse 10, in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, or this is the truth, or here is the conclusion, verse 11. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Without his Son, there's no eternal life, which goes back to the very elementary point that Jesus is God's Son. If there's no Son, there's only darkness, pun intended. But without the Son, S-O-N, you and I are without hope, which goes back to what we talked about three weeks ago with the idea of God's incredible grace in our lives. We need to appreciate the fact that God calls Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. It is a phrase that is used some 45 times in the Bible to refer to Jesus himself. And again, this is true if you have children or not, you can appreciate this particular concept. I wanted to conclude with a story that I heard a number of years ago, probably 30 years ago. And it's the story of the man who operated a train 
drawbridge. And some of you may be familiar with this. And for those who've heard it before, my apologies in advance, but there was the man who had a child, a son who wanted to go with him to work. And he had told him, no, it'd be too much for me to have to supervise you while also doing my job. And his job was the drawbridge operator for a train track bridge. So a train would pass by and he would make sure that the bridge was down so that the train could pass from left to right safely and get to its destination without any harm. And the little boy finally convinced his father that I want to go with you. I'll stay out of trouble and I'll stay out of harm's way. And so dad said, sure, you can come with me. And he was working one day. And on that particular day, there was a train that was coming, and he had notice of at least three to four minutes that the train was on the way. And the little boy had gone down on the tracks underneath the supports where various hinges would move up and down, down and up, to make sure that the train came down or that the bridge came down successfully. And the little boy got trapped. And the train conductor was getting closer and closer and closer. And he says, please lower the bridge. And the bridge operator, the father of this little boy, can hear and now knows his son is trapped. And he's got to make a decision in about two minutes worth of time. Do I lower the bridge and keep these people safe who have no idea what's happening and have no idea of the danger that is coming their way? And in doing so, my son will perish. Or do I save my son and hundreds of innocent people will fall to their death? He's got to make a tough decision. But our father made the tough decision for us. With an innocent man who never did what was wrong and made a personal sacrifice. And our father lowered the bridge. That's what he did for us. Now, the son knew what he was doing. I suppose there's the difference in the story, right? And the son was willing to die for that cause. That's the God that we serve. And we are very blessed to serve that God who loves us that much. That's the powerful sacrifice of Jesus Christ in that it was prophetic, spoken of in years past, purposeful, planned by God, permanent in its nature, and personal in the way that it impacts you and me. Our heartstrings can be tugged with stories like that, and that's okay. But our real heartstrings and our strings of our soul need to be pulled with the gospel message of Jesus the Christ who died for you and for me. That's the father we serve. That's the son that is our king. And we hope as we began this evening that you will want to be redeemed, that you will want to have your sins washed away, and that you are a soul that needs a savior, and that savior tonight will save you. If you are not a Christian, we hope that you'll make the decision to become a child of God. And if you are already a child of God and you need to make some sort of public correction where you acknowledge, I've not been doing what is right, we will pray for you and we will pray with you. If it's something private, 
where you can go to God even as we sing and pray and say, I've got to do better. I am going to do better, and please forgive me. We know in 1 John chapter 1, in that great book of love, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. If we can help in any way, let us know while together we stand, while we sing.